It's all you get. There's no gifts or anything. Sorry. <laughs> He's looking around like, is there more? I love that song in Psalms. I, I was in Africa when you guys uh, apparently learned that a couple weeks back and um, really, really enjoy that. That's great, great music. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5 with me, if you would, this morning, and uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. In your bulletin, Michael referred to the, uh, the bowling activity that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be a fun activity. But also, uh, one of the other inserts that's in your bulletin this morning is uh, related to baptism. And if you've never been baptized, you're a believer in Jesus and you haven't yet been baptized, um, you're going to hear about it in the next two weeks because we really want to implore you to consider that Jesus commanded this. And so it's an, it's an act of obedience to be baptized. And we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. So if you're interested in be part of, uh, being part of that, contact Gary Post this week. Let him know that you're interested and we'll talk you through it and make it really easy for you. And we just really would love to celebrate. New Hope celebrates baptisms, right? Amen. We do. We do. We celebrate. It's a, it's a lot of fun. So we're going to step into Romans 5, but I'd like to pray with you and pray specifically about a couple things that happened here in the life of the church in, the, in this last week. Um, some of you may know that uh, we lost Brian Webster. Brian passed away suddenly this last week on, on Wednesday. So we want to be praying for Herman Carlene and, and Karen, Brian's wife, and as a body of believers, really come around them and lift them up before the Father. And then, of course, um, Cindy Gilner, and Debbie Wright lost their mom. Debbie and Cindy are sisters. I don't know if you knew that. Um, but Debbie leads children's ministry here at New Hope. Their mom died uh, with pancreatic cancer just a couple days ago. So we want to pray for them as well. Let's, uh, as a family of believers, come around them in prayer, and we'll pray about this passage we're going to look at too. Father, we come before you with uh, hearts that are both heavy and, and hearts that are expectant. We feel the heaviness, Father, because of the loss and the reality of death in this world that is so broken. And we just ask that in the midst of um, the hurt, that you'd be especially close. You said that you're near to the brokenhearted. And I know that uh, in, the, in the Webster extended family, there's just this feeling of loss and anguish in, in among our church family as well. Uh, Father, we ask that you would be near to the brokenhearted and that you would bring comfort and peace um, in the midst of this just um, time of suffering. Father, I pray the same thing for Cindy and for Debbie and for their extended family, that you be especially near to them in the time of their loss. And let them feel the presence of your Holy Spirit around them. God, that you would indeed show them what your comfort looks like. For us, as we gather together this morning, we look at your word and we're looking for you to remind us of who we are and who you are to us. We ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes, give us a capacity to see in ways that we cannot do on our own. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. If, if I was to choose a passage in the Bible to set up communion, we're about to take communion in a few minutes. If I was to choose a passage that would support communion, I don't know that I could choose a better passage than Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. And we get to do that this morning, and I think you're going to see why it's just incredibly impressive about this thing that we do called communion. But also, if you're feeling a sense of brokenness this morning, maybe you're in a place in your life where you're wondering, where's God in the midst of all of this? I think you're going to find also great encouragement as you look at this passage, Romans 5, verses 3 through 8. 
So I just want to remind you where we left off at last time in verse 2. When we were together last week, we ended with this thought, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And we landed on the fact that this word exalt that Paul was using here is a word that you don't hear every day in the English language. He he said it, it, it literally means in the Greek word to vaunt or to boast. I don't know when the last time you boasted in the hope of the glory of God was, but Paul's saying this is a reality for a believer to to take the glory of God and to literally celebrate it. It is talking about something to, to the degree of jubilation. This celebration is based in something. He said you're not just exalting, you're exalting in the hope of the glory of God. It's not because it's a maybe. It's not something that might happen. We exalt because of the reality of what's guaranteed. Uh, Last week, we landed on this truth. A believer in Jesus Christ has no reason to fear the future and every single reason to celebrate it because we have a security. We have a security that it's our destiny to share in the glory of God one day. Uh, What does that mean to hope in the glory of God? Well, let's use this word hope again. I want to remind you of what we talked about last week, and I've I've mentioned it for several months now as we look at Romans. Hope specifically, according to the Bible, is a guaranteed reality. It's not a maybe. It's not something that might happen. Hope, according to the Bible, is a guaranteed reality that has not yet happened, but it will because it's guaranteed by God. God made a promise, and God can't lie. And so the hope of the Bible is a guaranteed reality. We need to remember that as we talk about the glory of God. So for a believer, there's multiple promises waiting for us, we're told, that are guaranteed that one day we will see. We touched on that a little bit last week. A a reunion in eternity with those who have gone on before us. A reality of inheriting new bodies. Of seeing things that we've never seen before. One of the promises that comes from Scripture is 1 Corinthians 15.54. It talks about this this mortal body putting on immortality. Look with me at verse 54. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So we look forward to a future when our whole being, our entire bodies are transformed in order to illuminate the radiance of God's glory. And because of that change, because you will put on immortality one day, you will be a fit vessel to be a conduit for the glory of God. Now let me expand on the glory of God. What is Paul talking about here? The Bible says there's some things that are a complete mystery that God chooses not to reveal to us. But there's things that are waiting for us. Paul says we we look through a glass dimly as though it's been fogged over and we can't see clearly. But beyond that glass, one day the glass will be cleared up and we will see clearly. Things that we can't comprehend. Scripture says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.9, there are things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. I don't know about you, but I can imagine some pretty fantastic things. God says you can't even go there. You can't even begin to imagine. So when I hear streets of gold, I think I understand what that looks like. When I hear about God's throne and I read about it in the book of Revelation, I think I got a pretty good picture of it. When I hear about the cherubim and the seraphim, 
falling down on their faces and yelling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think I know what that looks like. God says, no way. You can't even begin to imagine it has not entered into your heart or into your mind the things that I have in store for you. All of that sounds incredibly fantastic. It sounds so promising that we want to see it. And it takes a hard shift when you go to verse 3. And it says there's something else that we exalt in. How do we put these pieces together when verse 3 begins to say, we also exalt in hard times? Go with me to verse 3. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing the tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and character and proven character brings hope. This word exalt, I get when I'm talking about heaven. It makes sense to me. I'm like, whoa, bring it on, God. Show it to us. We want that. That word exalt, though, doesn't seem like it fits there. When have you ever used the word celebration in connection with the word suffering? But yet that attitude is found littered throughout the New Testament. If you have a pen with you this morning and you have your Bible open, you might want to write down some of these verses. I'm going to give you a lot of supporting verses. Maybe pull the notes out of your bulletin and write them down there. These are things that will help you put these pieces together. But here's one example of that. It comes from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4.12 Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... This just kind of sets you back. Keep on rejoicing. Even though you're going through fiery ordeal, keep on rejoicing. And it doesn't stop there. Scripture also says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness. Paul says, here's why. Because if that's what it takes to bring on the power of God, if that's what puts Jesus on display... If that perfects His power so that the power of Christ may dwell in me, bring it on. I'll most gladly boast in that. Do you have a hardship you're going through this morning? Maybe some huge difficulty you didn't see coming? Something that just completely caught you off guard? People, human, human individuals typically think this way generally. We tend to think of evil as something to be endured. God says that's not the case. If you're a follower of mine, if you belong to me, the Bible doesn't say simply endure it. It says exalt in it. And that's so contrary to our thinking. Now hear this. God does not say just suck it up. Just endure it. God says, I want you to consider it joy because there's purpose in it. Now, I I'm, I'm, want to be really clear here. I'm not talking about some fatalistic determination to make the best out of a bad situation. We're not like a bunch of Eeyores walking around going, oh, bother, I guess if I have to, right? If you don't know who Eeyore is, you probably didn't raise children with Disney. But Eeyore's got this negative attitude. Everything's a dark cloud, right? Oh, bother. Well, we're not like that. It's not just some fatalistic determination to make the, worst, the best out of a, a bad situation. The Bible says joy can be present, a present reality in times of distress, how is that possible? Because godly suffering has a purpose. God says this kind of suffering, it'll build character in you. 
There's a hard, hard promise in the Bible. There's lots of good promises, like streets of gold, right? But there's a hard promise. The Bible says there's a reality. If you're faithful to Jesus Christ, you can be certain you're going to come under some degree of pressure from Satan. Let me remind you of one of those promises. It says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does that look like? Because if I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to understand what what is he talking about here? And, And Paul says I'm supposed to exalt in the midst of that. Because it's a reality. It's going to happen. Well, this word tribulation as it's used in the New Testament is the word philipsis in the Greek language. You find it in your notes this morning and you see it on the screen. This word philipsis was used in a very specific setting. If you went back to the first century and you went to an olive grove, you would find them harvesting olives completely differently than they harvested grapes. Everybody has an image of how they stomped grapes into juice and they'd throw grapes into a vat and and people would begin pressing it down and let the juice run out. Well, a grape is very soft, so it doesn't take a lot of pressure. But when olives were put into a vat, it required extreme pressure. So it wasn't just a vat with people climbing into it. It was a vat with a lid put on top of it and a big turn screw. And individuals getting on either end of a very large wooden handle and beginning to turn the screw. Because in order to capture the oil, in order to capture the perfect part of the olive, they had to put it under extreme pressure. That's the word thalipsis here that Paul has borrowed in this language here when he says you're going to come under tribulation. So we're talking about real suffering here. This is not minor issues like somebody cuts you off as you're walking into Starbucks to get your latte, right? This is not like, oh man, my manicure bill is so expensive this month. It's not that. That's minor issues. We're talking about really hard suffering. And this is not the consequences for bad life choices either. There's consequences because of poor choices. Poor choices have poor outcomes. Dave Ramsey, who's a financial planner, calls it stupid tax, right? He says, you make stupid decisions, you're going to pay a tax on it. Stupid tax. We've all had it. We've all done it. That's not what this is talking about. This kind of tribulation that he's talking about here is talking about somebody who's a believer in Jesus, walking with Jesus, doing their best to live godly, but living in a really dark world that's fallen into sin and experience as a result of that oppression and sometimes attacks from Satan. And it takes many forms. Some of you have experienced what I'm talking about. It can be in the form of physical illness. Things are going along perfectly. And out of nowhere, boom, you're sideswiped. Didn't see it coming. Sometimes, Scripture says, those illnesses are a result of an attack. Sometimes it's spiritual oppression. Sometimes it's just the result of living in a fallen world. Here's another form. You can be socially ostracized because you live for Jesus Christ. A social group that you used to fit in when you begin talking more about Jesus just says, yeah, we're not inviting that guy to the party anymore. Or job loss or relationship issues. You try living for Jesus and living as an example of Jesus in front of someone who only stiff arms you and pushes you away. Scripture's talking about that's you. As a result of living for Jesus, somebody pushes you further and further and further away. So Jesus encourages us, remember. Remember that these struggles may very well be the outcome of simply belonging to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
So we need to be reminded of what some of those evidences are. To counter the reality that you may come under some of that pressure, there's some truths in Scripture you need to see. Here's one of them. Persecution, according to God's own word, persecution brings God's blessing. Let me show you a verse from Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is what, church? Great. Megos. That's, that's the word megos right there. Great, right? Who said that? Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus. God himself said that. Your reward is megos. When people insult you and despise you and revile you and falsely say things against you because of me. Here's, a, here's another reality the Bible says. Persecution is an evidence of your future glory. Let me back that up with Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For momentary, I don't like that it says light affliction because it doesn't feel light, right? Never feels light. But Scripture says momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Here's a third one. Persecution in your life, you're you're walking with Jesus, you're a Christ follower, persecution is an evidence that you are living for Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way before. It's a confirmation. Because God says you're going to endure this if you desire to be godly. So John 5, 15, 20 says this, Remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus speaking. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus says, you're no different. If you belong to me, they brought it on me. They're going to bring it on you. And no one likes it. None of us like it. But I promise you, it can be a way of opening up new possibilities in your life. I'll just speak from my own personal experience. Some of the things that I've gone through, some of the things that my wife and I have gone through from our own experience, there are things that can come your way as a result of persecution that you'd have never known in any other way. In other words, God can open up doors of opportunity to you because of the hard times that you go through. He can bring you down a completely new path. But bigger than all of that that we've just mentioned, no matter how hopeless things may appear, even today, some of you may think things are hopeless. No matter how hopeless things may appear, from a human perspective, remember Romans 8, 8, with confidence you despairing I want you to remember this verse look with me on the screen the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us somebody else better say amen like louder than that you guys come on I mean look at what scripture is promising us even though we feel like we're really in the depths it's just nothing compared to what is waiting for you to the glory that will be revealed in you. Did you know the Bible reveals that we're not the only ones here on this planet who are going through hard times? The the Bible actually reveals that all of creation goes through difficulty. Look with me on the screen. It says this, chapter 8, verse 21, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans. Why? Because we live on a fallen planet. We live in the darkness of this world that has collapsed 
from the glory of God and rejected the glory of God. So creation waits to be set free. We're not the only ones going through hard times. This creation is waiting for the revealing of Jesus Christ. These struggles you should be noticing as you're looking at verse 3 and verse 4 produce an ever-increasing outcome. Look very closely at verse 3 and 4 if you have your Bible open. It says, tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope. It keeps getting bigger and better. There's, there's, a, there's an outcome. I don't want to get bogged down into that part of it, um, especially of the Greek words that are in your notes this morning, but there's two words I want you to especially see that are not going to go up on the screen. Hupomone is talking about perseverance, that, that phrase that's used there. And it carries this idea. The ability to keep pushing forward, to continue working in the face of extreme obstacles. And it says as a result of that perseverance, it produces something. And that's the other word I want to bear down on, the proven character. In the Greek language, it's just one word, it's dokame. It's literally the word proof. And this word was used among metallurgists when they were refining gold and refining silver and they put great heat underneath a kettle to allow the gold to bubble or the silver to bubble and the slag would come to the surface and the pure gold would stay down low because it's heavier. Pure is heavier. So it would refine it. In that same way, Paul has borrowed that word and brought it in here to give us this thought that God uses these tribulations in the lives of believers. And hear this. You listen online, I want you to hear this. Pay attention to this church. These hard times are not to make you fit for salvation. It's not to make you more fit. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're already saved. You can't be more saved. It's not to make you more fit for salvation, but it's part of the process of maturity. Scripture calls it sanctification. It's maturing you in Christ. It brings about character in you. So verse 4 says, and that proven character does something. Brings about hope. Now look at what Paul's doing here. He's gone full circle. Verse 2, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt in the fact that we're going to inherit new bodies one day that we're going to see members of our families and friends who have gone on before us, that we're going to see streets of gold. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. But he's gone full circle around and he says, godly hope, that godly hope produces godly hope. If I've lost you on that, hear this. Our hope in the glory of God is increased through the process of tribulation and hard time. And the end product of that is a hope that does not disappoint. Verse 5. Go with me to verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How in the world do we connect the love of God with despair? How, how do you put those two pieces together? How in the world does Paul use that in the same thought? How do we connect the love of God with adversity? Well, first thing I want you to notice, do you see as you read that verse, the Father does not offer his love in little tiny drops. He says he pours it out. They just gushed upon us. I'll, I'll amplify that in just a minute. But God floods our hearts with love through the Holy Spirit, we're told according to that verse. So the Spirit is involved in this. The Holy Spirit is at work helping us to grasp the, the reality of being loved by God. 
even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when you can't feel the presence of God. When you're wondering, it seems so broken. I can't understand this. I can't put the pieces together. And Paul says in the midst of that, that's when God is gushing out his love upon you. How do I understand that? This is a Greek word I do want you to see. It's going to be on the screen. It's ekunoo. And it's talking about literally. The reason I wanted you to see it is because he uses this for a reason. It's talking about literally gushing to the degree that you feel the tonnage of God's love. Poured out means lavish, abundant, overflowing to the point of spilling over the brim. So when I'm a, a teenager, my mom tries to teach me to like coffee, right? In our house, my mom and dad drink lots of coffee. And so my mom keeps serving me cups of coffee, and, and I'd say, Mom, I don't like this. This stuff's like bitter. How do you drink this? She says, well, it's an acquired taste. I'm thinking, okay, why would I want to teach myself to like something I don't naturally like? It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so every person I've ever talked to who drinks coffee says, yeah, that's right, it is an acquired taste. Okay, so she teaches me to make coffee because she realizes I don't like it, so she thinks maybe by making it and smelling it, he's going to like it more. Why she had such an addiction to coffee, I don't know, but she really wanted me to share her addiction. And so um, mom teaches me to make it the way that she likes it, and so when guests are over, she can send one of the kids out into the kitchen to make her coffee. So being an obnoxious teenager, um, I did things just to kind of irritate my mom sometimes. And when she would send me out to make the coffee, sometimes I would make it extra strong just to spite her. All right? but, but other times, I would typically, if there were guests over, I would fill the coffee cup right to the very brim. All right? it just so it would intentionally spill over the edge. You know, you get the look from your mom, but it's just what teenagers do. Okay? I got this image in my head this week as I'm working through this passage about this lavish, abundant, overflowing, spilling over the edges as I claim to Psalm chapter 19 when it talks about God pouring out lavishly. Take the same image we've just talked about, the pouring out of God's love, and take it with me to Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day, what church? Pours. Gushes. Pours forth. This is creation imagery. God dumping out bucket loads of evidence like Him saying, Do you see? Last night and the night before, I stood out in my driveway and I saw this incredible dark blue blanket black sky punctuated by all these light beams of stars. God's saying, do you see my glory? I'm pouring it out as evidence for you so that you can see who I am. Now that's creation imagery of God dumping it on us and then you go to the New Testament and you find Jesus using the exact same term about what He's done for us. Go with me on the screen to Mark 14, verse 22. While they were eating, this is the Last Supper, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is what church? Poured, gushed. It's my blood of the covenant, and I'm gushing it out. 
So you will get it so that you will understand. Paul's borrowing from this exact same imagery with God unleashing tons of confirmation saying, do you see? Do you understand? I'm giving you this so that you can't miss it. What is he pouring out? Verse 5 says, he's pouring out the love of God. And he's not referring to our love for God. He's referring to his love for us. And the most overwhelming reality of God's love is found in the simplest verse in the New Testament, John 3, 16. God so loved his world, this world, that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish. God says, I'm gushing it. I want you to see the evidence of it. That's an overwhelming reality. And then we're told at the end of that verse, verse 5, it's through the Holy Spirit. So after telling us there are things waiting for you that the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, nor has entered into the mind of man, there are things waiting for you. And Scripture says these things are even revealed even in the smallest form by the love and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if it were not enough that God pours out His love on us, He also has given us the power of the Spirit to help us grasp it. What does Scripture say about that? Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 2.12. Why does He do this? That we may understand, that we may get it, what God has freely given us. Maybe right now, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ, you feel like, I hear you talking about the Holy Spirit, Mark, but I hear other people talking about it, and I'm not sure I see evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm going to help you measure it right now. I'm going to help you measure whether or not you can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit being active in your life. Whenever you aim, sincerely aim toward righteous living, Whenever we have a strong desire to pray, whenever we long to study the Word of God, whenever we worship Jesus with all our heart, whenever we show up as a community of believers to be together to worship God, we know in those moments we are being led by the Holy Spirit. We know that. How do we know that? Because natural man has no such desires whatsoever. It cannot have that desire apart from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So if you're questioning whether or not the Spirit is even in your life, look at the evidences. Do you pray? Do you study God's Word? Do you long to be part of a community of believers? Do you grow? Are you further along in your walk than you were a year ago at this time? That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So Paul knows we desperately need to grasp the magnitude of the love of God. So in response... He writes one of the greatest passages ever recorded in all of history in verse 6. Go with me to verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, this is like the Bible screaming, you think God doesn't care? You think he doesn't give a rip about what you're going through? Check out the proof of his love. For a while we were still helpless, God died for the ungodly. And you find that your hope is rewarded with a fresh awareness of the incomprehensible love of God. God sending His Son when the time had fully come, 
I talked with a person who was a brand new to church this last week. They were here last weekend and never been in a church before and came to me and said, how do I make sense of this? Why did he do these things? Help me put the pieces together. Why would he do this? And here's why. If you're new to church, you're listening online, maybe you've never tuned in before, listen to this. Because as humans, we are absolutely powerless to break the chains of sin. We don't have the capacity. So picture yourself in a dungeon, chained to the wall. That's the way Scripture pictures us. Chained by sin, destined for an eternity apart from God. And no amount of struggling could ever free you. This is hard truth. It's really hard to hear that humans are born into sin, we live in sin, and we need forgiveness for a Savior to come and rescue us. It is hard, hard truth, but I cannot candy coat it. That individual I was speaking with sat in the wicker chair right in the very back of the auditorium earlier this week and said to me, do not candy coat this. I need to understand this. I've been to places where they placate me and make it so easy, but I need to understand what is the reality of man's condition? Here's the reality of man's condition. Humans are utterly helpless. That's why Paul wrote that. While we were still helpless, powerless to come to God on our own. Meaning this, powerless to please God, powerless to escape sin, powerless to escape death, and God's love triumphs in the midst of that. Where human power fails, God excels. Into the midst of our powerlessness, God sent his amazing son. I got the most vivid image for this when I was in Africa a couple weeks ago. And, and it was such a subtle thing. The medical team didn't know I was watching them, but I'd finished um, teaching the pastors that I was teaching at the conference. And I, I came down to where they were at running the medical clinic. And I saw all these scores of people who were lined up from the Kawanguari ghetto. And I'm, I'm talking about people who literally live on top of a landfill. Just to get an image in your head, they built a church building there in the midst of this slum area. And in order to put the foundations in, they had to dig down 20 feet into the soil to put foundations in. Because at 14 feet, they were still hitting garbage bags. These people literally live on top of a landfill. And so they're lined up at the medical clinic waiting for treatment from these individuals who have flown thousands of miles from America to come to their country to be in the midst of their ghetto. And while I'm watching these people lined up and our medical team taking blood pressure and administering medicine and doing physical checkups, I hear God whisper to me, Mark, are you seeing this? Are you, are you catching this? This is like my son leaving the glories of heaven in a much, much greater way and coming to the slums of planet Earth. God leaving the glory of everything that is attended to by God. The angels bowing down and praising him and he leaves that and comes to this place where we're so caught up in sin and we can't even escape from it. And I have this imagery of this medical team right in front of me treating these individuals person after person after person and hearing the people of Nairobi saying, why would they do this? Where did you come from? What's it like in your country? I couldn't begin to explain it to them. I couldn't begin to explain the privileges of living in the United States of America compared to what they're living with with a dollar a day income. Into that reality, God sends his amazing son and his love triumphs. 
Now, here's where we get messed up, church. Natural human love has a problem grasping this because our natural human love is based on the attractiveness of the object of our love. Do you need to hear that again? Our natural human love is based on the attractiveness of the object of our love. I'm going to give you a contrast, a very simple illustration. I know I keep leaning into Africa, but it's really recent from my mind. So here's here's an illustration for you. While we're there serving, the team hears that there is uh, some elephants who are uh, baby elephants that have been um, abandoned or they're orphaned, right? Now, I know some of your hearts are melting already when you just hear that, right? So my daughter hears about that, and some of the other team hears about that, and we find out that it's only like 35 minutes on the other side of Nairobi where they've got this reserve, this preserve, where they're keeping these orphaned baby elephants. And, And they're so giddy about getting over there to think that they could actually feed the baby elephants, I can't even hold them back. I mean, they're like so determined to get there. And so we arrive thinking we're going to be maybe the first 10 or 20 people and they're going to get to give food to the baby elephants. So we arrive and find there's literally hundreds of people there. And apparently this goes on all the time, people lining up to try to attend to these beautiful, precious baby elephants. So I want you to see this image first so you just get this in your mind of Mackenzie with this elephant behind her. And there's right joy on her face, right? It's like, I can't believe I get to feed the baby elephants. It's so great. Now, in the midst of this, if you're watching what's going on around like I was, because I was completely removed from the circle, and everybody's got joy on their face like Mackenzie, but I'm just kind of observing, I'm seeing something else. These elephants are all over the place, and yeah, they're, they're cute, okay. But running around are these little warthogs, okay? They call them Pumbaa. Maybe you're familiar from, from Disney, right? So I want you to see what a warthog looks like if you're not familiar. But they're dog ugly, I'm telling you, right? They, they, they got tusks that come out the side, okay, right? You remember what, what a war, warthog looks like? Nobody paid to get into the park to see them. Nobody's going, oh, I want to feed the warthog because they're ugly. They're not the object of our love because there's nothing beautiful about them. Natural human love is based on the attractiveness of the object of its love. And add to that, we are inclined to love those who love us first. Scripture is saying Jesus came even though we're warthog ugly. Even though we're completely unworthy of His love. Dr. Hodge The theologian captured this thought really well when he was studying this passage. I want you to see his quote. He said it this way. If God loved us because we loved Him, He would love us only so long as we love Him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. Paul's argument is this. Salvation depends not on our loveliness, not on how beautiful we are, but on the reliability of God's love for us. See, he counters it with verse 7. Move forward with me. We're almost done. Verse 7 says this, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. We can understand that. Paul says one will hardly die for a righteous man, though maybe, maybe if you're a member of SEAL team, you throw yourself on a grenade to save your brothers in the military. Maybe if you're a Marine, an Army Ranger. Maybe if you're a fireman, you're willing to put yourself in harm's way to save someone else, but it's extraordinarily rare. That's why we give out medals in the United States, because it almost never happens. 
Maybe someone would die to save somebody else, but it's really uncommon. Yet, no one will die for an evil person. You don't find anybody lining up outside a prison saying to the warden, please, let me come in. I want to get on death row and take that guy's place. His life is so precious, I want to step in there and save his life. No one goes to the Middle East and says, I want to lay down my life to protect that ISIS soldier because we think of them as wicked. We think of them as evil, and no one's going to die for them. Yet that's exactly what Jesus did, and God did not wait until we were well-behaved to do it. He didn't wait until we're perfect enough. Jesus died when we didn't even care for his attention. While we were still sinners, no wonder, get your amens on, no wonder John writes in 1 John 3.1, how megas is the love which the Father has lavished on us. Ah, man. You guys did so much better than the 9 o'clock and Saturday night crowd. Thank you. I didn't even have to work for that one. How great is the love. God just spilled it out in bucket loads on us. No wonder John writes that. We would probably all agree. Love is the most powerful force in the world. It, it does amazing things. It is the very goal of human existence. No one in this auditorium, no one within the sound of my voice, no one streaming online right now wants to live without love in their life. We all want it. It's hardwired into us. We understand it is a powerful force. Diana Ross said, there ain't no mountain high enough that'll keep me from getting to you, right? If you don't know who Diana Ross is, ask somebody older than you later. <laughs> there ain't nothing gonna keep you when you're in love, from pursuing that one. So 1 John 4, 16, it says this, and everybody's got it on bumper stickers wherever you drive. It just says, God is love. How do we understand that? Because it just seems like words. How do we understand it? Because we said love is defined by action. The Scripture is very, very clear about how we understand that God is love. The ultimate definition for love is this. Love, look with me on the screen at this definition. Love is the voluntary action of placing the welfare of others ahead of one's own. Ahead of one's own what? One's own welfare. In other words, putting somebody else before your own needs. So it's action, it's not sentiment. Meaning it's easy to say, it is very, very hard to prove. So the Bible says you can prove the love of God by one thing. And it's found specifically in Scripture, 1 John 3.16. We know love. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. So here we come. We're landing this plane. And Paul's given us perspective. You want to get your mind around God's love even when you feel like it's not present, even when you can't sense it? Paul says God's love is even greater than humans can imagine because Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus didn't die for those who had cleaned up their act. He died for everyone. So verse 8 says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I can't find a more perfect statement in Scripture to define love. While I was still a sinner, Jesus says, I got this because you can't get to me on your own. 
I want you uh, among us, those, whether you're a theologian or not, whether you're even a student of the Bible, maybe you don't even own a Bible, I want you to notice that word, the third word, God demonstrates. It doesn't say demonstrated. It's not past tense. God demonstrates. It's written specifically in the present tense for a reason, meaning the cross keeps on showing. It's a past action that has a present reality. So there's this Greek word attached to it. It says this word demonstrates actually is, is like God putting an exhibition out there. He's exhibiting something. The cross took place in the past. Yep, it was a historical action that has a present reality. Some of y'all just discovered it within this past couple months. Some people have just discovered it within this past week. But everybody in this auditorium is going to be reminded again today as we pick up the cup and we pick up the bread of what it means for God to pour out His love and gush it upon us. So three phrases to end this. Verse 8 says it's God's own love. You would expect Him to say, the cross shows the love of Jesus, but that's not what Paul says. He says it's God's own love. He's putting an emphasis on own, meaning putting an emphasis on God the Father. God's own love. In other words, Jesus' action is God's action. God's action, God's love, is Jesus' love. Paul can speak of the cross as a demonstration of God's love because God and Jesus are one and the same. That's why he says this is God's own love. Verse 8 amplifies it by saying, while we were yet sinners, meaning every one of us is broken. Every one of us is imperfect. Every one of us has issues. And while we were yet sinners, it wasn't that we were ready to repair our life or fix what's broken, as though that's a precondition for salvation. See, this is a strong reminder for you. He loves you because of what He is, not because of what you are. While we were yet sinners, here's the most simple thought. Christ died for us. Incredibly simple, impressively easy. A five-year-old can get it. But theologians have spent thousands of years trying to dissect it and make sense of it. The essence of God's great love for you is that Jesus died for you. And it's beyond human comprehension to grasp it. We, we think it's hard enough to picture streets of gold and, and, and God's throne in heaven. Get that through your mind that Jesus died for you. He left the glory of eternity to come to the slums of this planet even while we were hopelessly entangled in sin. So check yourself on this thought. The God who hates everything to do with sin loves the sinner. What do you do with that? Well, we celebrate. We celebrate through communion. If you're new to New Hope, we always read 1 Corinthians 11 before we take the cup and we take the bread. So I'd like to do that for you right now. And then we're going to close with a worship song. So let me read to you 1 Corinthians 11. These are the instructions to the church. It simply says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And this is why this is very significant for us this morning. Verse 26. For 
as often as you do it. We do it here once a month on the first Sunday of the month. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You wouldn't want to proclaim something you didn't belong to. So you're proclaiming that he died for you and that he's coming again. So verse 27 has got this huge warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. At New Hope, we allow you time to examine yourself, merely just to pray and talk to the Father. If you're in relationship with him, just examine your life. Before you come to one of the tables in the front or in the back or up in the balcony, and when you do that, someone will be there to say to you, you're picking up the body and the blood to remember what Jesus did. Take it back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest. Can I invite you to stand with me? We're told it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he held up bread, and he said, this bread will represent my body, which is broken for you. And in the same meal, he held up the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. When you drink it, remember what I did for you. Father, I stand among an auditorium full of believers who have just witnessed that they believe and that they belong and that they've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. Father, that we are the redeemed of the Lord and we're not ashamed to say it. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we stand before celebrating what you did for us and we thank you with all that's in us. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.